Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week we're exploring exposition in Excalibur 52, All You Ever Wanted to Know About Phoenix But Were Afraid to Ask, a title inspired by a sex farce, which isn't very sexy or farcical, not on purpose anyway, what we do with it remains to be seen. Excalibur number 52 was originally published in July 1992, and the creative team is Alan Davis on writing, Will Simpson on pencils, Jimmy Palmiotti and Dave Hoover on inks, Kelly Converse on colors, Michael Heisler on letters, and Cherry Kavanaugh on editing. Your wisdom has forged this ring. Hereafter, so that we remember our bonds, we shall always come together in a circle to hear and tell of deeds good and brave. I will build a Round table where this fellowship shall meet. Yeah. And a hall about the table. Yeah. And a castle about the hall. Yeah. And I will marry. Yeah. And the land will have an heir to wield Excalibur. Knights yeah. of the round table. So this sure is a comic, and we sure are here to talk about it with a super funny and smart guest who's going to help us put all these caption boxes in context. I'll introduce our guest in a moment, but first, your regular psychic illusions. I am Dr. Anna Bapard. I do stuff about sex and gender and pop culture and superheroes, usually writing stuff, sometimes teaching stuff, and of course, podcasting stuff. You can find my academic writing in journals and expensive books and my other writing a bunch of other places like Shelf Dust and Middle Spaces and Comic Book Herald and... Women write about comics recently in Comics XF. I am also Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager. In that capacity, I am getting increasingly tired of the cast era of Nightcrawler, but we're in the home stretch on that front, <laughs> I promise. I am joined, as always, by Mav. Reacquaint our listeners with your excellence. Hi, my name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav. Uh, my grandmother was born in 1926 in Cleveland, Ohio. When she was 15, she met my grandfather, who, and I'm telling you all this stuff. I don't know why. I just thought, Maybe you'd like to know my entire family history up until this point, you know, cuz. 
<laughs> but actually, so Mav, that not... sounds like an interesting story, far more interesting than what we have here. So maybe you should just tell us that I mean, story. Sure, I can tell you how my grandparents met, and then my parents, and how eventually, at some point, I'm randomly conceived, and then my parents' <laughs> relationship breaks up, and I grow to adulthood, and then we can just get to the end of the book and be like, oh. Yeah, we're done. Um, How does the astral but... <laughs> plane factor in? How does time travel factor in? You got to beef up this I mean, story. Barely, you know, but like I can make stuff up, which is exactly what happened here. This is so stupid. And and I'm not going to say it's the worst comic I've ever read. It's not. But, no. uh, but I, it's like, it just feels like everything about this feels pointless. And, uh, mm -hmm. and so, you know, now I, I hope people stay tuned in because I think we're going to have an interesting discussion. But yep. just this book, if there's one you can skip when you're reading through and you're doing your read along with us, you know, and if, if you don't already have the issue, I would hate to like make anybody go out and spend two dollars in, in a back issue bin to get this because this is uh, why. I mean, like, you think like, this why comic this is happen? going for two bucks in the back issue bin? <laughs> Steep. Steep. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, it could be. Yeah, I mean, could, this could easily be in the nickel bin. That's true. I mean, but then you have to find it. It's a lot of work. I mean, nothing about this. this is, I don't know. I also host another show called Vox Popcasts, which I assure you, everything that I've ever talked about on that show or this one is more interesting than anything that happens in these 22 pages of comic. Um, sorry. <laughs> Just this is so stupid. This book is dumb. <laughs> Compelling lead in to listeners that we're going to ask to hear us talk about this for another 45 yeah, minutes. I'm, but I'm, we, I'm, we will have interesting things to say, I promise. <laughs> Andrew, remind our listeners of your cosmic might. I don't have that. I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. <laughs> I'm a lecturer at St. John's University and project lead for the Claremont run. My life history would be nowhere near as exciting as Mavs, but it does have bears in it at one point. Ooh. So there'd be like one cool scene. But spoiler, I survived. <laughs> Jesus, I kind of want to talk about that a lot more yeah, than this comic bears. also. <laughs> Andrew has a demon bear. If there was a demon bear in your story, we absolutely are talking about that instead. Was it a demon bear, Andrew? No, it was a black bear that wanted some dog food that was left out on the porch in a remote cabin. Oof. Wow. I'll let the listeners fill in the pieces of that. We are joined this week by a leading name in X-Men podcasting and X-Men costume yeah. redesigning, among other things. The pod is delighted to welcome Adam Reck of ComicsXF and the Battle of the Atom podcast. Welcome, Adam. Hi, thanks for having me. It's exciting to be here. <laughs> We're so thrilled to have you and so grateful that you volunteered as tribute for this not especially shiny issue. But um, let's talk a little bit about your comics origin story to start, as we like to do on the podcast. So I've gotten to know oh, sure. you a little bit through Comics XF, but we haven't gone over these important facets of getting to know somebody. So yeah, what's your comics origin? What started you on the road to loving comics? Probably going to the mall as a kid and... Uh... I know this is going to sound wild if you're like a younger <laughs> listener, but there used to be these things called bookstores that were in the mall. So like I would go into a Walden books and there'd be the spinner rack and I would go and I'd pick up like the licensed title. So when I was a kid, you know, probably like seven, eight, nine, got really into Marvel's Transformers run. And Start that kind of, yeah, that, that sucked me in. So uh, that's kind of like where I got started and got obsessed. And then the other thing that I distinctly remember was JC Penny used to have a catalog that you could order stuff out of every Christmas. Uh, Marvel used to do this really cool thing 
thing where they had all of these, I guess, returned or leftover titles from a given month and they would just throw them in a bag and you could order that to your kid for Christmas. So I'd be like, get me that. So like one year I got every single Marvel comic from August 1990 something, you know what I mean? Like, and then I steadily increased a, a, a weird collection and figured out and then that's that's when I really started getting obsessed with uh, with X-Men. Well, tell me a little bit about your road to becoming an X-Men podcaster. What's the origin of the Battle of the Atom podcast? <laughs> it's not super glamorous. Um, back before Comics XF, people might remember that uh, Zach Jenkins ran a, kind of a, a rinky-dink operation called Xavier Files. <laughs> yep. um, and he was looking to expand content. And I was working, I had just started doing a webcomic about Bishop and Jubilee called Bish and Jubes, um, which eventually turned into like, you know, kind of a five issue miniseries thing. And Zach contacted me and was like, hey, I want to start reprinting these on the Xavier Files website. I was like, okay. I didn't know if this guy was trying to scam me or not. Like, I I had no (laughs) idea who he was. And then uh, after we did that for a while, he was like, look, um, I've got this podcast with my friend Matt, and it's about the the television show Legion. And um, well, we didn't think this through. There's only like 10 episodes of the show. So once it's <laughs> over, we don't have anything else to podcast about. So he, he had this idea, um, which is pretty wholly ripped off from Chris Sims ranking stories on War Rocket Ajax. Is that what the show is called? Um, I think so. So one day in August, like five years ago now, uh, we sat down and recorded like three episodes back to back we were like okay this kind of works and we never stopped um i think <laughs> a couple of weeks ago we missed a week for the first time uh since we started and that was because i accidentally deleted the audio my audio so <laughs> we're, we're, we're doing okay here's a question for you do yeah. you have a favorite episode or episodes that you would pull out to highlight I like the episodes where we can get excited about something. So mm-hmm. sometimes episodes where like the issues are just kind of okay. Like we did a Galactus one recently and we were like, well, we don't really don't know what to say about these, but I like when the issues are either really good or really bad okay, because yeah. <laughs> when they're really good, uh, we can just go kind of crazy and hyping them up. And then when they're really terrible, it is a lot of fun to trash talk them. <laughs> We'll certainly be getting to do a little bit of that today. (laughs) Um, Let me ask you one more X-Men question, which is the emotion-based question of what particularly draws you to X-Men comics? What made you get so hooked on them all those years ago? What keeps you coming back? Um, I think maybe from an emotional level, it's like from being a loser as a kid and like reading (laughs) X-Men and being like, wow, these guys are outcasts and everybody hates them. This is great. Uh, I have acne. Um, (laughs) and then, you know, from like a long-term perspective in terms of just like continuing to love these characters, it's all, it all comes down to the, the team dynamics. I I love the artwork. Mm. I love these long standing, confusing stories, and I still love the individual characters. So, uh, I I keep revisiting it and it never really gets boring. That makes sense. Well, let me ask you the Excalibur specific question about your history with this series. Uh, yeah. yeah, Like what is your history with Excalibur? 
Quicksilver. Is this an X-Men franchise title that you particularly enjoy? Okay, so, you know, you have to remember I was like 11 years old when the Mutant Genesis rebrand happened. So, <laughs> you know, I'm I'm looking at this and going, yeah, Jim Lee, gatefold cover, or, you know, X-Force trading card, right. Um, and then I, I have uh, this Mutant Genesis poster that is a very long back of the door kind of long thing. And it has Excalibur characters on it who, who have been drawn beautifully by Alan Davis. And even at the time, I was like, wait, what? I know who Kitty <laughs> Pride is, but like, what is this? And Marvel, I don't know if you guys remember this from the time, but they really weren't pushing that book at the in the same way. I don't think no. they knew what to do with Excalibur in 1991. Um, so they had this big launch <laughs> and Alan Davis was back. But to me, it was sort of like the redheaded stepchild. Nobody I knew was reading it. And so I wasn't either. Um, but then over the years, I've, I've really grown to enjoy it. Um, I love Alan Davis as an artist. I love the, the wacky little specials they do like Mojo Mayhem and uh, yes. really come to, to love it as a, I've read more of it especially for Battle of the Atom. All right, let's get into the issue at hand and get to our requisite griping about that. So I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We never pretend to be Scott Summers to manipulate you, we promise. But as always, let's start today's flashback with a plot summary. Excalibur number 52 opens somewhere Excalibur usually isn't. The expansion where Professor X is catching up with some Robert Frost. As he reads, he is interrupted by Scott Summers, aka Cyclops, on a video monitor who is just checking in to remind him everything's fine, nothing to worry about at all. That's a totally normal thing that people do, and it gets weirder when Scott suddenly appears in the room and starts shifting between different versions of himself. Professor X is, you guessed it, trapped in a psychic illusion. Xavier finds himself fighting the X-Men and Magneto before the Phoenix appears and blasts him across the room. That blasts him and us out of the illusion and into Braddock Manor, where the members of Excalibur are gathered around the unconscious Rachel in the green Phoenix costume, along with Professor X and Jean Grey. Jean reminds the confused Xavier what they're up to. They've come to England to try and help Rachel, which Xavier has apparently been trying to do for the past 12 hours. Xavier deduces the Phoenix Force sees him as a threat, so he links Excalibur and Jean with Rachel in an effort to communicate, hoping this will make the Phoenix friendlier. It works. They find themselves reliving the life of the Phoenix. The broad strokes of this are... Okay. It was birthed with the Big Bang, but wasn't sentient until it made contact with the original Farron and felt joy for the first time, then pain for the first time when Necrom chucked it into space. Many years later, it returned to Earth, seeking Farron but instead found Jean Grey. It places the real Jean in a cocoon, thanks John Byrne. Then Dark Phoenix happens. Then it finds Rachel hovering in the astral plane and follows her back to Days of Future Past Future. There, the Phoenix strikes a bargain with Kitty so Rachel can start her life again in the past with the power of the Phoenix. Which all sounds great, except Rachel's memories get fragmented as a result of all this retconning. Having completed its tale, the Phoenix <laughs> returns the assembled heroes to Braddock Manor. The Phoenix Force appears before them, a baby cradled in its aura. It tells them Rachel was destroyed by the forces she used to defeat Necrom, and though it rebuilt her body, it has learned it must take its time rebuilding her mind. The Phoenix takes Rachel to the stars to heal, while Excalibur, Jean, and Professor X watch, sad and helpless. Okay, so this issue. Um, <laughs> I am not personally much of a fan, and I don't think most of us are, um, but I do think there's interesting stuff, including this retconning. Going to talk about the retconning of the Phoenix again. I feel that we've done that 5,001 times on this podcast already. <laughs> but let's start with our honored guest for some first impressions. Adam, what particularly, if anything, struck you about this issue? What are you particularly eager to talk about or gripe about or anything else? Uh, one thing that's really important to note is that at this point in Marvel publishing history, there is not 
a huge way to go back and read a lot of the old comics. Now, one of the cool mm-hmm. things that Marvel was doing at this time was classic X-Men. And uh, I've talked about this on Battle of the Atom, but I distinctly remember getting a copy of classic X-Men number, what is it, 44, which is a reprint of X-Men 138, which is essentially the issue after Dark Phoenix Saga. And it's a summary of all of X-Men from the beginning uh, of the Silver yeah. Age until the end of Dark Phoenix Saga. And that book was kind of like a handbook to me. I was like, oh, wow. Like now I know what's going on in X-Men kind of, you know, at least like the history. Right. And this issue kind of feels like it wants to be that, except it doesn't make any sense. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So that's my first impression. I'm like, this is a cool idea, but Alan, you can't actually stitch this, this puzzle together. Yeah, I'd imagine that's what we're going to end up doing a lot of talking and griping about because I thought a lot about that, about exactly what you're saying. You know, why do comics do this? And, you know, catching readers up is a real thing that comics had to do before the era in which we just had everything at our fingertips, which we essentially do now. And so you can see the value of it in that sense. And I can even see the appeal of it. It's like mythologizing these stories. It's like making us feel that this is this, you know, serial continuity that we can all be involved in. And yet elements of this particular story have have not actually appeared in previous comics. So it's like, I'm just being right. lied to about this being a continuous story <laughs> that makes sense, which is frustrating. And it actually made me feel kind of dumb reading it. I was like, I'm sorry, when did this happen? I've read all of these comics and I don't remember this and there's no editor's note. And I'm like, oh, there's no editor's note because this didn't happen. Right. I like that you called it, you know, her memory is fragmented because of the retcon. And that is not, that's now my new head canon. Like that's, um, <laughs> because... that's why. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, in the world of comics criticism, be that academic or or fandom, Jim Shooter takes a lot of crap, much of which is deserved and some of which is not. Um, One of the things that I think is not deserved, I think um, Shooter had this feeling that he he would frequently say every comic is someone's first comic. And this is why in the 1980s you had, during the Claremont run, you had every issue opening with some danger room double page splash where everybody said their name and what their power was. And it, it just happens. I'm Cyclops and I can shoot optic. Like that was just the thing that happened a lot because it was establishing for the person whose first issue happened to be X-Men number whatever who they were. So I'm okay with trying to revisit, you know, and we even do this today. In 2022, we do this thing with the inside front panel, you know, has uh, the story so far and it's, you know, so I'm okay with that. This is weird, not because it's retconned. I'm okay with retconning even. It's weird because it's retconned badly. And this is just yeah. like none of what's happening makes sense. If you want to say that, you know, look, we, we've we had 20, or actually I guess at this point, about 10 years of, when is Rachel introduced? It's been about 10 years of continuity and sure, the original deal the future past didn't know what was going to come in the future so i'm okay with massaging it but this is convoluted nonsense frankly like if rachel has the power to astrally project herself into the past okay let's say that but then what exactly did the phoenix find floating over new york and why is rachel physically here it's not explained at all like none of this makes any sense even under the rules that davis and kavanaugh are establishing for this issue and that bugs me (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's like the thing, right? Because if you're gonna retcon something, the usual way to do that is to add something interesting to the story or to streamline continuity or fix something, you know, something that we can kind of use moving forward to keep telling stories in this space. And I feel like so many of these retcons of Rachel just make her backstory more confusing. And that's really frustrating because you think about characters that do have their origin story retold again and again and again. Like, I mean, you have that with like sort of even like with like a lesser character, like, you know, Hal Jordan Green Lantern or something. You know, we get his like origin story with like his dad and the plane and the explosion retold again and again and again. And the reason you often get that origin story retold is because they do like some little twist on it, you know, adding some little thing to like propel more stories forward. And you can hate that, but at the same time, you can sort of understand why they do that. It's like inserting some new villain into a backstory or something and sort of making the future make sense. But like, what is this adding to Rachel other than making her backstory more confusing and more nonsensical? And frankly, taking a lot of agency away from her own story because Mm, it just is becoming this thing where she doesn't have access to her memories. She doesn't even know her own story. Like she doesn't have a lot of agency in the fusion with the Phoenix at this point. So there's just a lot of questions about why to me. Grown up Kate Pride is just flat out evil um yeah. <laughs> like like she, she's like okay so grown-up kitty has decided okay in order to give rachel a chance i'm going to send her to the past but you know let's remove her memory you know just for fun it's like to spare her from the tragedy of the future except rachel remembers all the tragic parts of the future rachel is fully aware of like that her parents were killed by sentinels and everything like she knows all the horrific stuff she just doesn't know why she's there so like what memories were scrambled doesn't make sense and also grown-up kitty like okay i get that because they didn't understand how time travel works they thought their world would be would be better and then it wasn't so now grown-up kitty's gonna has decided you know what screw it our world doesn't need to be better long as i can save you know this one person then screw everybody else on, on earth there's a way of writing that as an epic romance between Kitty and Rachel, but that's not what we're getting here. <laughs> no, no, not at all. No, no I, I don't think because it's not even about Kitty. It's like, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. under this theory, Rachel gets to survive and we have doomed not only Kitty, not only I think Peter was actually dead by by now. Like, I think everybody else had already died on the mission. It doesn't matter. But like literally everyone else on planet Earth is doomed because Kitty has decided to save Rachel at the behest of of this alien in the form of Jean Grey that according to this story, that version of Kitty had never met before. There's yeah, no, that's weird too. There's, according to this story, there is no Phoenix in the future of Days of Future Past. Well, that's another weird part of this is that like to follow the timeline, the Phoenix also is traveling through time via her body yeah. and doesn't right. make a that doesn't make any sense. Right. You know what it's I mean? It's not like... logically consistent within this story. If, no. if, you, if, if you break Claremont lore or you break, you know, somebody else's lore because you're doing something interesting, fine. But this is not consistent within this story. Well, because the <laughs> one of the things I think is so funny about this issue is that, you know, it's like a kid who like thinks he's building with Legos, but is really just like stacking them next to each other. like he's not actually putting them together so like it's like how did the phoenix get with gene oh gene was floating around oh how did he get with rachel oh gene rachel's just floating around it's like wait what so you know alan davis is often put into this position uh as part of his career with the x-men um to like clean up claremont's messes (laughs) and uh he you know i mean if you guys have ever read the 12 you know that 
Alan Davis is not usually good at digging himself out of these type of holes that editorial is like, yeah, you, you got to do the 12. And as he's like, wait, what? Okay. I guess I'll do this garbage now, but he's not in like a good position here because you know, the Rachel mini that was supposed to come out after Rachel went off page with spiral in uncanny never came out. So there are gaps in both like how she got to uncanny, how she got back to Excalibur that you know we've got to sort of go like yada 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 here <laughs> that's exactly what he's doing no, he's like well and then, and then this happened saying you yada know? yada yada would have been better okay so 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 there's a there's a good casual way of doing this at this point in comics when marvel decides that ghost rider who for 20 years had been a character named johnny blaze ghost rider is going to suddenly become danny catch Danny yeah. Catch is a new, the new version of Ghost Rider. And there's a convoluted story, maybe you like it, maybe you don't, of how Danny Catch becomes the new Ghost Rider. And then Danny Catch is the Ghost Rider for like a decade. And then there's a movie coming out with Nick Cage as Johnny Blaze. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, they bring back the Johnny Blaze Ghost Rider in the comics. And the way it happens is a new series starts. And at the very beginning, it's like Johnny Blaze is once again the Ghost Rider. That's it. That's the explanation you get. <laughs> there's there's nothing more. You just move on. Like so I have read at this point 51 issues of Rachel fell out of the sky and was just Phoenix now in a red costume and I I'm like, "All right, so this is where we are now. Clearly I'm enjoying it. I'm, you know, 30 years later I'm hosting a podcast about it, right? I was I did not have questions about, well, but how did she get here? So I don't have these questions. I'm a huge fan and even if I did have those questions, you didn't really answer them for me. Like, <laughs> no, like, not even um, a little bit. Two episodes ago for us, I, I brought up knowing this was coming up. I asked Andrew, so do you think Rachel died here? Because I think she did. So this book says maybe she did. I mean, Kitty says, oh, it's like Rachel is dead. And then they just kind of all get over it. But the Phoenix has a baby inside of it, which is Rachel or not. <laughs> I'm not sure because the Rachel body is still here. Everything about this is just bizarre. And I'm like, what is going on? I, I didn't have that many questions when we started, but now I have a ton. And, <laughs> and fast forward 27 years, tw uh, 28 years, I know you don't answer them. No, <laughs> like, cause never, I, cause never been never. touched again. Uh, yeah, and so, it, it does not help that this is done by Will Simpson doing breakdowns and Palmiotti and Hoover mm -hmm, doing finishes. Mm -hmm. If maybe it looked pretty, like if I had the Alan Davis on here, I, I might be more willing to accept it. But the fact that it looks not great. And also like Phoenix as the narrator is just a really weird conceit too. Uh, it, it just doesn't land. Yeah. And like the art, is really a problem when you have a very sort of emotion-based story like this and you're having the thing where someone's doing breakdowns and two other people are doing finishes because first of all there's a consistency problem but second of all like for those fine details of facial expression that's like ooh, that's a hard way to do this particular kind of issue if it was just action that could work a little bit better but it's some of the faces are rough in this issue i think it's fair to say oh yeah and the coloring is not great either. Like when we flash forward to the future, it's done in a, a gray, pink, and like very light <laughs> so orange bad. color scheme. Yeah. 
It looks ugly. It's and not great. And you called it emotional. Like I know. I mean, I guess. I guess I'm supposed to feel it, like it, it is. In theory, it's supposed to be. I guess yeah. I'll rephrase. This, it's a 30 page comic, 16 pages of which are flashback narrated by oh, uh, by a traditionally emotionless uh, character. Mm-hmm. And I just I don't care about anything that's happening. Rachel is probably my favorite character on this team, and I don't care what's happening to her here. I'm just like, stop, just. Just be done with this book. <laughs> yeah, it is a it is a wasted opportunity. You know, yeah. like you could really have sort of the definitive Rachel story here, but it does not stick together. It does not make sense. See, I, I might actually disagree with that, just because okay. I, I think I think the problem that's really emerging for me in, in my reading of it, I think Phoenix works a great deal better as an enigmatic character. Mm. And I think when you try to fill in the backstory, you take away some of that sort of cosmic awe and wonder. Yeah, and when you yeah. have the Phoenix literally narrate her story to you, just as Anna mentioned, uh, I think that diminishes it further. It humanizes her in a way that I don't think Phoenix is supposed to be humanized. Yeah, to have a rationale from a cosmic entity, <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't necessarily make sense. I want the monolith from 2001 approach. Yeah. Just this inscrutable thing. That's what I want the Phoenix to be, I think. Right. I don't want the Phoenix to explain to me why yeah. <laughs> they ate the broccoli people. You know what I mean? Like, just, <laughs> just be raw emotion. Um, yeah, exactly. And also her, her origin is also the Beyonder. So, like, if you've read Secret yeah, Wars, yeah. this is exactly the Beyonder's origin. Like... I didn't know there was anything to be until I, by chance, yeah, saw a hole poked in the universe and then I observed and, you know, like literally. It's an annoying story anyway. It's just that classic yeah. <laughs> story of like, I didn't have morals and then I had contact with these humans and the warmth of their souls turned me into a really good person because humans are at the center of the universe. And it's just all like, ugh. Not just humans, the love, the loving touch yes, of Scott yes. Summers. Yes. Oh God, it's true. It's true. Well, can I come to you with it, Andrew? Because I wanted to ask you about sort of the Claremont angle of it. And you already started talking about it a little bit, but I mean, I was interested in this as like a mythologizing of the Claremont era, which we are past in X-Men comics, you know, at this point, but he's only recently departed. I mean, to what extent do you think this can be read in conversation with that? Like, I mean, what was kind of the conception of claremont within x-men fandom at this time did he have kind of like the godlike impresario status that he has in certain circles now like when you retell all of these stories were people sort of reading this and being like oh man that like epic mythology of the claremont era like i'm (laughs) on board for having this retold i was wondering if you had sort of insight into that aspect of it no, I don't think Claremont really had the mystique. I mean, oh man, that's a terrible phrase. <laughs> he didn't have the sort of um, cult following yet. He was um, very mm-hmm. much considered a popular writer at the time. But I think one thing that is happening is Davis is kind of working through a pastiche because most of these scenes that he's depicting, Claremont wrote them, right? They happen. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he's ignoring other scenes that Claremont wrote, which creates conflict. I mean, Adam mentioned classic X-Men 44. Classic X-Men 43 has a story that Claremont wrote about what happens to the phoenix after gene dies oh, and right. it's it, it's not this you know what i no, mean no no <laughs> so, so there's a there's carpenter in, in, a, in the white hot room right exactly life and death mm-hmm. but um I, I think 
what Davis is doing, which I kind of respect, even if the execution's not there, he's basically doing what we've been talking about a lot since he came back. He's, he's taken over and he's saying, this is Rachel's backstory now so I can move forward with it. Because like Rachel's backstory at this point is broken. It's it's mm. broken because of the Phoenix retcon. It's broken because of Burn. Broken because Claremont couldn't accept the Burn thing and wrote things like classic X-Men 43, which contradicts Burn's interpretation. Yep. Um, so you might as well just make it your own start over use some pieces from the existing mythology pick and choose what you want and, and run with it which again good strategy but the execution as we said not really there well should we talk about the specific retconning that we have here of rachel's mutant power because that's something that we get here explicitly and then terry cavanaugh will actually mention it in the letters page of the next issue but we get this like <laughs> allusion to her actual mutant power not being telepathy and telekinesis like you would suspect but so this is on page 22 of this comic rachel was crucial to the plan so they're talking about the days of future past stuff um not for the telepathy and telekinesis she had inherited from her mother so i guess she does have that but the reason she was crucial to this plan so this was the plan to send you know kitty back into the past and days of future past she was integral to this because of her own mutant ability to project her astral self through time which is apparently a thing that rachel can do which i think has never been picked up on again but i mean why why throw something like this in it is but so i I am aware of it happening again but it's not it's not one of her common powers (laughs) wow i'm about to dig in the series the adventures of cyclops and phoenix i think it's called Mm -hmm. Uh, it is um the story of gene and scott are brought forward through time to raise young Nate Summers as a as a child into teenagerdom so that it, it turns out that um, when baby Nate is brought into the future, he's not actually abandoned by his parents. His parents actually did come and they raised them under the um, guise of two people that he thought of as his, his adopted parents named. And yes, this is their actual nicknames that he didn't figure it out. Red and Slim. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, I love that they're, I've always loved that they're on their honeymoon when this happens. Yes, they're on their honeymoon. They get kid- <laughs> And they get kidnapped by Mother Ascani, who it turns out is Rachel Summers. Uh, right. um, Rachel yep. Summers it uses her powers to bring Scott and Jean through time to Cable's future. To so it okay. does come yeah. up, but yeah. I mean, for comic book scholars on a show, and I'm the only one who remembered that, <laughs> like, and, and only <laughs> and only vaguely, right? Like, it it is it's not a good story. It's not common. It, it's just this random thing that you know when someone needs her to be able to do that, somebody says. Oh, yeah, yeah. Rachel has vaguely defined time travel powers that if I don't go and read the backstory, then I'm not beholden to making sure they work the same way each time. Right. That's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, it's uh, it's a very strange choice to try and just throw that in as an explanation. Um, yeah. It is kind of funny that it gets picked up in Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. So, but I mean, if you look at Rachel's desire to like, or, or her feeling throughout the Uncanny X Men run where she's around to like, she doesn't feel like this is her reality. You'd mm-hmm. think that if that is her power, she might just like Leave. be like, "Yo, I'm outie, <laughs> I'm done." Well, perhaps there are emotional reasons that keep her there, which could segue ah. us into talking about um, the portrayal of Jean Grey in this issue, Adam, which I know you had. <laughs> 
some thoughts about. Uh, Gene comes off a little rough in this comic. Walk us through it. (laughs) Well, I mean, this happens a lot uh, in the interactions between Gene and Rachel, (laughs) where Gene is just like, man, this is not my kid. Like, I don't want to deal with this. And it's it's really funny paired with the art it just gives her these very scowling expressions um she comes off as really not very nice a couple times in this issue like you know even at the end where uh we haven't talked about this yet but at the end you know the phoenix takes rachel's body into space and she's just kind of like yeah i mean what are we supposed to do we can't stop the phoenix you know she's just like thank god she left like that's kind of the (laughs) right (laughs) like she does not want to deal with it she'll she can handle cable you know when when you see gene and cable interact she's like i get this like we raised you in the future in this really weird way but like i get it you're my son but every time she interacts with rachel it's like yikes <laughs> I, I see i don't buy that I, I i don't buy it because i don't nobody remembers that there's the adventures of cyclops and phoenix I, i'm sure you know let us know in the comments or on twitter did you read this storyline because like everybody's like it, i'm sure some of you were like oh yeah that was a thing i i think it's always been inconsistent that gene's like okay cable's not really my kid he's really madeline's kid but okay close enough I will consider him mine, but she has been colder towards Ray traditionally. It's different, I guess, because at least in the point in X Factor when, you know, when they got baby Nate back, uh, he was a baby, so he was cuter than teenage Rachel. But that's essentially <laughs> no, I mean it's essentially just making Gene kind of a bitch, right? Like you're like you like you except that Andrew's gonna disagree. Except well no, but no, I'm saying I'm saying it I'm saying what ends up happening is you end up with her saying, Oh well, you know, I don't we're not gonna follow you. It's not really my daughter. Except that like she's right. It's not. Like I don't (laughs) I don't feel like I think everything that every time Jean has these little awkward moments where she's like, I don't know how there's a what's the comic where she talks to Sue Storm and Sue's like, but that's your daughter and Jean's like that's days of future present yeah and gene and gene's like is she though i don't really know this woman it's creepy it's not like i even gave her up for for adoption she's the daughter of some person who cloned me against my will that's weird and she's like my age and like i understand why gene's weirded out by it like everything about rachel should be weird to gene it becomes complicated because she's less weirded out by cable and but that like, makes sense to me. Does it? Why? Yeah, because she knew Cable as a baby, because she helped raise Cable in an right. alternate future. She has a relationship with him. Rachel is just a stranger who shows up and says, you're my mommy. You know what I mean? Yeah, That's but, terrifying. Okay, but Cable is, I mean, the fact that she was able to bond with Cable in the first place, Cable is Why wouldn't she? He's a baby. Of, he's, yeah, he's, the, he's a baby who is the son of my clone, whom my boyfriend married because i was dead when my other clone killed like literally yeah, everything but keep about in mind weird. keep in mind that at the, <laughs> at the end of inferno she inherits maddie's memories that's right so gene uh-huh. is technically an amalgam of phoenix gene and madeline at the end of inferno so right not only does she have this 
relationship with Cable from when she gets sent into the future, but she also has the emotional memory of her raising him as a baby when she when Madeline raised him as a as an actual child, you know? So like there's this weird it's ill-defined, but you know, there's a maternal link there. Yes, but then Phoenix tries to like the Phoenix Force right here tries to imply that that same thing should be happening, right? The Phoenix Force says, I just gave you back your life force and the pain that comes with it and everything. So I guess we're supposed to believe that Jean now has that relationship to Rachel too, except for apparently she doesn't. But maybe because in Alan Davis's future, there was no Phoenix Force in the days of future past. I'm not sure. Oh, trying to think about the time travel aspect of that hurts yeah. my brain. Yeah, yeah that's a yeah. tough one. That's a tough one. I mean, because uh, I, I don't think that was originally the case. I, I believe in the original days of Future Past, we are supposed to believe that Jean was the Phoenix and then she got better, which is why Rachel originally had access to the power, not right. because the Phoenix story it never happened. It was more that the Phoenix story happened and worked out. Like that was the original, uh, at least. I, and again, it's been, Andrew, you've probably read this more recently than I have. I, I last read that story 20 years ago, um, but I thought that's how that worked. <laughs> Wait, which story are we talking about? Are we talking about in, DOFP? Yeah. In, in days of future, in days of future past, aren't we the original days of Claremont's yep. original days of future past. Aren't we supposed to believe that Rachel is the daughter of Jean and Scott. Yes. Jean was the Phoenix and is no longer. Not that Phoenix never happened, but that they just won. Like, I right. just, that yeah, story. just barely. Like, Rachel is not clearly defined. It's implied, but, but we don't even really know that she's Cyclops' daughter. Yeah, but there's like an implication that she has the Phoenix through Jean and not through the shenanigans that happen here, right? Right. Yes. Right. So I think that's where this this particular issue gets like real messy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, is because everything we've heard before about like a shard of the Phoenix or, you know, the the bit with the, the crystal that the Shi'ar give uh, Jean Grey's parents, like all of that stuff gets completely kind of thrown out the window with this issue. And at least, you know, from a lot of continuity that happens after this, people just don't pay attention to what's happening in this issue. So (laughs) not that, not that Rachel ever gets her due, but um, you know, it's, it's interesting how even just the Phoenix just like consistently gets used over and over and over and over again by writers without ever really thinking about the continuity uh, without ever thinking about Rachel. I I just went into Marvel fandom, you know, when when prepping for this episode and tried to read, you know, all of this Phoenix history. And I'm like, this doesn't make any (laughs) bit of sense. You know what I mean? like writers are just like oh man the phoenix is back and then like a couple years go by the phoenix is back (laughs) so you know it's a bit messy Um, current marvel continuity acknowledges the phoenix being on earth in a million bc right (laughs) with um something that has nothing to do with Farron whatsoever yeah (laughs) Yep. Yeah, no one picked up that Farron Necrom connection no, no, in future comics. No, no, the Phoenix Phoenix has been hanging out in one million BC, hanging out with the Ghost Rider and Odin. Right, <laughs> that's, and that's, she is Thor's and Iron mom. Fist and stuff. Yeah, it's whatever. <laughs> Jason Aaron, just what are you doing, buddy? <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. 
I want to talk about the ending, but I also want to talk about Professor X a little bit, which I was like going to do off the top since it's the yeah. beginning of this. But then we got too into our griping. So it's just like almost <laughs> going back to the beginning and then going to end on the ending. So whatever. Our format makes about as much sense as this retconning. But yeah, I was just sort of curious to talk about him a little bit just because this is like the only, it's not the only, only time that we're sort of going to get him, but it's one of the only times that we're going to get him in Excalibur. And yeah, this is like a curious time in the X-Men continuity for Professor X. I mean, every time is a curious time in the X-Men continuity, so that's kind of a stupid thing to say. But at the same time, I always find this time period a little bit weird because it's like he came so much more to the front of the franchise, like with the, you know, just as Claremont was leaving. And then as he did leave, he's so much a part of the Scott Lobdell era and rereading those recently. It was so bizarre. I was like, oh, he's like really a hero and like the keeper of the dream and everything. Whereas from all the era of X-Men before that, it really felt like the franchise had moved past him and like sort of embraced second generation leaders. And then they kind of went back to Professor X and sort of reset that status quo. And, you know, that's something that sort of keeps happening sort of right up until the present, although complicated in the current comics in terms of his heroism or villainy. But yeah, I thought I'd ask you about that, Adam. Like, what's your perception of kind of where the character was at at this point in continuity? How are we supposed to understand the character at this point in time? Well, it's kind of funny because he has this kind of like heroic rah-rah welcome back in Muir Island saga, which is bizarre, and then is completely <laughs> recentered in X-Men 1-2-3, which is basically just like Jim Lee and editorial going, hey, we're going to reset the the chessboard here. And, you know, everything Claremont was building to, uh, you know, like <laughs> we, we're going to hit the reset button here and, and do a soft reboot, which obviously was incredibly popular. Professor X is, is painted as this long suffering individual and, and hero of the cause, you know, and they really dial up the antagonistic relationship slash love hate relationship between him and Eric in this time period that I think has lasted till today. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm. So Andrew can probably speak to this more, but, you know, given that Claremont was not able to actually do mutant wars, like he planned uh, and was forced into this, this very odd sort of capstone on his, his tenure uh, with Muir Island saga. He basically writes the first couple of issues of X-Men as sort of like, you know, this is my parting gift. Let's mm-hmm. let's write this this thing, this this encapsulated three issues that sort of just is a send off, you know. But be, in doing so, he sets Charles up as as this central figure who will appear in almost every issue. It it, it it's very bizarre how centered he is. Yeah, I think I think you said it exactly. Basically, it's a Byronic hero that they're trying to turn him into. Um, which is a really weird state for X to be in, as in Professor X, just because he's been characterized prior to this as sort of a, an overbearing authority figure, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. rather than, as you said, the sort of central piece. I don't know. I, I find it very strange. I don't necessarily think it's a bad idea. I think it, I think it could work if you're being forced to bring him back into the book to to change his his fundamental function. But the one thing I wanted to point out, just because it made me laugh a lot, was Davis <laughs> drops this really good line where he says that um, Professor X wants to be quote far from the babble of thoughts that spill from weak minds and i'm like that's a pretty badass elitist thing to say really snotty but it makes sense for xavier and then you turn the panel and he's reading robert frost stopping by yep. woods on a snowy evening which is like the most well, that was gonna be my final thought ever. i know i know oh, sorry matt no it's fine it's no no I mean... no two years well no it's i i mean 
So this was um, Robert Frost was I don't know why, but my junior high school had an official poet. He was the official poet of my junior high. Not that he didn't had anything to do with it, but they just voted that for like when I was in like sixth, seventh grade. And so we were constantly reading this and the road not taken. And, you know, it's like, oh, let's read Robert Frost poetry. So like I recognize it immediately. I mean, not that it's I'm, I don't think that Robert Frost poetry is bad. I think it's fine. No, I like Frost. Um, yeah. It's just that what what's weird about it is I think it's intended to be this deep inquisitive Yeah, oh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. Read Robert Frost poetry and like everybody again it was the poetry that was assigned to me in seventh grade. This is not Xavier, you know, pouring over Joyce and trying to deconstruct. Yeah. Something. You know, you know, this is Robert Frost. It's very accessible. And then the fact that like, and I don't understand that because there's this line in here where Xavier realizes that he was in a fictional reality because of the frost poem but it's not explained like i i think i'm just supposed to get it like he explains he's like oh yeah i knew because of my choice of reading material and i'm like so you don't really like frost or <laughs> what i don't know what that was supposed oh, to mean i think that's the meaning of the poem the idea of not getting stuck in a sort of um, um scenic view his um. responsibility draws him back just as the the main narrator in frost's poem gets drawn back to reality due to his responsibilities Ah, is that what they were going for? That is I not clear so. at all. Okay. <laughs> okay, sure. Andrew had to bring that to it as a literary scholar. I, love it. I mean, that it could be that. Yeah, I mean... It is yeah. It is funny, though, that, that uh, you know, he's reading this cliched, very popular piece of poetry, you know, because as we go through continuity for the next couple of years... Xavier is painted as sort of this very public, still closeted, but very political figure that is eventually like, you know, assassinated in public and and then unravels into this point where he like basically turns his best friend slash adversary into a vegetable. So they're, they're building towards something without realizing it. You know, there is no master plan anymore. There's no one person in charge going, oh, okay, this is how all of this should be building. It's just a bunch of different writers sort of, you know, in the dark, figuring out their way. But it is interesting to see how that kind of builds on itself. Yeah, I have such mixed feelings about him coming back into the fold in this way, because I, I really like him as a character. I think he's a very productive character, even in the sense that I want to say this carefully, but like he's a character with a physical disability who is neither purely good nor purely bad. Mm -hmm. And that actually is really important because either side of that can be uh you know an ableist stereotype a person with a physical disability is supposed to yeah is supposed to be sort of the best of us and you know represent sort of ableist notions of of how you navigate disability or they're purely evil you know going all the way back to like ultra humanite and superman in 1939 right the idea yeah. of the embittered supervillain who is jealous yeah. of the physical prowess of the superhero right and i do like that professor x is in the middle you know he is a guy who's often usually got good intentions but often resorts to questionable methods to achieve those aims and then his goals are sympathetic to the extent that he is fighting for you know the best for humankind but or humankind for mutant kind both both since he's an he's an integrationist whatever mm -hmm. or it used to be but then there's other stuff like where 
And like, I get this is me being a Nightcrawler fan, but I like have never gotten over the image inducer thing and I will never get over it. And I'm frustrated in the sense that it hasn't been dealt with because I actually think that's an interesting aspect of the character. So what I'm talking about is, and this is something that happens off panel, but Kurt mentions in at the beginning of Dark Phoenix Saga that Professor Xavier was kind of forcing him to use the image inducer and that Xavier was going to be mad at him for stopping using it. And that's a really interesting potential aspect of the character because he is this like integrationist. He is a mutant that stays closeted for a very long time and has a certain approach to how mutants should you know, go about being accepted. And the fact that he has these kind of blind spots having to do with physically different mutants as well as racialized mutants, because that's something else that comes up during the Claremont era. I think those aspects of the character are really interesting, but it's not something that I see kind of at the forefront in this era of Xavier comics, which is frustrating a little bit to me because it's something that I very much read into the character, but just not sort of present on a primary level in most of the stories from this era, I find. I think, uh, you know, a huge part of his presence has almost nothing to do with storytelling whatsoever. It has more Mm -hmm. to do with branding and what the quote unquote, like look and roster of the book is supposed to be, Um, you know, and then especially once you get the animated series, like, well, He's here. Yeah, um, you're lost. <laughs> just starting now, by the way. This is a so we are. This is this book is coming out around the time that X Men ninety two, the X Men cartoon that probably many of our listeners grew up with, um, is basically. Uh, this is the era of which that 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 series is just beginning. Yeah, and uh, I I don't think we mentioned it yet. The uh, Alan Davis cover here which says yeah. Professor X versus the X-Men and has Jean Grey shrugging. If this, what is <laughs> yeah. she saying? If this doesn't increase sales, <laughs> nothing sales will, uh, which is a nod both to Excalibur's uh, unpopularity and to <laughs> the X-Men's ubiquity, uh, I think is really interesting. It's total lampshading, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, that's probably the best joke, like, <laughs> in the book. <laughs> you know, Excalibur is often, you know, renowned for its humor, and uh, there is no humor in this issue, but the cover still slaps. <laughs> yeah, the cover is great. Love the cover. You would be very disappointed in the comic you got based on that cover, which looks like it's going to be a fun time, and yet not so much what we get here. Yeah. There's a lot of comics that you guys are going to be reading in the, in the future where they try and convince readers that this is just more x-men as opposed to what excalibur was and should be and uh i'm sorry for that (laughs) (laughs) on the subject of endings let's talk about the ending of this comic which um yeah rachel goes off into into space to heal which i feel like is sort of one of the superhero equivalents of you know i have a girlfriend but they're in canada which you know is off for me (laughs) since i'm in canada but you know it's getting somebody off the board right it's like they still technically exist but they're in space healing and they could be there for an indeterminate amount of time and we could pull them back from space if we want but for now they're in space don't worry about it and this is such a bizarre choice to me. Alan Davis has done so much really actually great work with Rachel, you know, in this story arc beginning in Excalibur 42. And honestly, I'm just asking questions about this ending. Like, how did we react to this? Because I felt so weird about it, especially I felt weird about it the first time I read it, you know, a decade ago, but I felt even weirder about it now having spent all of these hours talking about the wonderful character building that she had on the road trip with Megan and how in some of those stories, I felt closer to Rachel than I had ever felt. And the coldness of this ending after that really hit 
me a certain way. I like really didn't feel good about it. I don't know. What were the other reactions to this ending? I thought it was weird kind of rhythmically, just the idea that, you know, when Rachel sort of dies or maybe dies uh at the end of the the big necron thing and then you see the hovering body and you're like oh she'll be fine in a couple of issues and then she's in a coma for an issue and then she leaves do you know what i mean mm-hmm. like it just seems like you could have maximized narrative tension by like killing her or having her go away at the end of the necron arc but that's maybe a petty complaint yeah it, it it's also interesting because if this were like uh, claremont running the ship rachel could be in that coma for like two years you yeah know? that's what i was thinking <laughs> you know, i was sort of thinking she'd be in the she'd be in the braddock manor like in the coma and they keep checking on her and right. like having emotional confessions at her bedside <laughs> it's like kitty being intangible you know what i mean like mm-hmm. it could just yeah, last yeah. for however long you want it to until we forget um, about it yeah <laughs> yeah so it is it is bizarre that they go to such alan goes to such lengths to try and connect all of the the different tissue you know of of the phoenix storyline in this one issue and then ends the story by saying yeah we just threw her out the window yeah like yeah literally right mirror cyclops departure at dark phoenix a little bit too just the idea of you get this coda that talks about the history and then cyclops quits yeah but rachel doesn't even get to make a decision about quitting because i mean that's that's one a wonderful bit of character building for scott you know having to do i mean you did a great thread for claremont run earlier this week about you know his relationship with madeline and his mixed feelings and feelings of obligation about leading the x-men so him quitting is super important character rise Mm -hmm. but here rachel's not even present it's not even her voice and so that's part of what really doesn't sit well with me because we don't even have a goodbye between rachel and the other characters because it's not even her it's also like like you said it's it's unclear moving forward in the storyline like is this just the phoenix now Mm -hmm. is it rachel are we rebuilding back towards rachel like it's a kind of cool story conceit right because then she can go on these cosmic adventures but it also as you'll see and i know you know this because you've read these books already it divides up the story in a very very weird way where you're flashing back between very two you know from a very grounded story on earth to these like space adventures and you know i think most people who enjoy this cast would be like okay well bring her back now <laughs> and, you know. yeah especially because so much of the interest with rachel i mean you know you talked about relationships right at the top adam but like her deep and interesting relationships with these characters i mean we have a flashback in this issue yeah. of like her reality with her as a child on her realities like the knee of her realities kurt you know like laughing and smiling and like she has that strange history with like him and then obviously her very like deep and rich complicated history with kitty and so uh, this is getting too ahead of ourselves but i know what you mean in terms of her being broken off from the team for all of those future issues we'll talk about that when we get there but yeah i don't know there was a way i feel like you could do this ending and i knew this is like us rewriting the comic which we sometimes do but i feel like there's a way you could do the tragedy (laughs) of like the fact that the characters can't even access rachel to say goodbye that is like a pathos that you could do here and i don't know whether it's the writing i don't know whether it's the art i don't know whether it's the stiffness of the like you know 12 pages of phoenix narrated retconning that happens before this but this last page is like just rough that's just that's almost all i want to say about it i think it's rough i think if you're a rachel fan and we're reading this at the time it would have been really rough um <laughs> knowing that she comes back it's slightly better but like oof yeah, that's what if the last panel was just Farron sitting on a curb with a narrative that <laughs> says, and nothing will ever be the same again. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been better. <laughs> well, I mean, Farron's not, I mean, yes, he's in it in in flashback, but he's not even part of this conversation. He's still in the which, garden. Yeah, Kurt chased him into the, the garden, garden, recall. <laughs> 
right. But I mean, but like given what his character is supposed to be, he absolutely should be here, right? Like I want to hate him. I want to be mad at him going, no, you can't leave. You are my birthright. Like that would be character building. This book has the promise of X-Men. What you get is Gene and, and the prof, right? Like, mm-hmm. they, like, like literally everything about this is awkward and weird. And, and that's part of why, you know, we've been dancing around it, you know there's a lot of stuff about this that leaves bad taste in our mouth. Um, yeah. And I, I, I just, you know, I went and pulled the numbers just because I was really, really curious, given the cover which says, you know, if this doesn't increase sales, nothing will. Um, how well do you think this sold? Oh, no. <laughs> Probably poorly. <laughs> it was the 45th best-selling comic of, of May of 1992. Okay. Excalibur number uh-huh. 52. It outsold Deathlock and Darkhawk. Nice. Um, well, and, yeah. <laughs> and it lost, it, it, and it comes in right behind Batman Penguin Triumphant. The so we're still, com- we're still talking probably more than 50,000 copies here, right? In this the, area, I don't, for sure. Yeah, in, the, in that era, yes, but I don't have exact, um, uh, Comic Con can't give me exact copies for, yeah. books that, for books that old. But yes, to give you stuff that it, it outsold Darkhawk and Deathlock, but it was behind the Darkhawk Annual. It was mm. behind Captain America. It was behind Eternal Warrior from Valiant Comics. Um, <laughs> Archer and Armstrong from Valiant Comics. One of my favorite books, Nomad. Nomad, I am a big fan of. I have every single issue of, of Nomad. Nomad was, it's May. I'm not, I'm, I'm still working at the store, but I'm about to quit and go to college. And I don't think I was selling one to anybody other than myself. Like Nomad was a book we were order, we were ordering for me because I love Nomad, and and that was the thirty first best selling comic of that month. So forty five is down the yeah. list, you know. Oh Jesus, um, that's yeah. surprising to me. I mean, I don't have any perspective on it. I wasn't reading it at that time, but I've been doing this academic project, <laughs> rereading Wizard magazine, and it was hyped a lot in Wizard. I mean, Alan yeah. Davis returning certainly got a lot of a lot of space mm. in the pages of Wizard, and it really stands out since it seems so out of step with the general style mm. of everything else from like 1991. But yeah, um, surprising. So the best-selling comic of that month would have been of 1992 would have been Spawn. So again, I, what what I can tell you is I can tell you what the um, diamond um, order index was. And so an order index is roughly probably represents um, 1500 copies or so. Spawn had a 295 order in, in, index followed by X-Men with a 206 at number two. Uncanny X-Men is number four with 172. X-Force is six. Wolverine, there were two issues that month were our 11 and 12. X-Factor is 16. And now we're down to an order index of 94. And then if we jump all the way down to 45 excalibur is number 45 with an order index of 49 so it's and i think it's considerably lower it's it's understandable you know if you look at the mutant genesis reboot you're coming into fresh new continuity with stories that are fairly easy to understand in most of the other books and if they're not easy to understand they're very like action focused whereas excalibur is still dealing neither of those things yeah continuity issues that have been going on for you know since issue number one and i mean nothing really uh points to that better than the very last page of this issue is a teaser featuring the crazy gang (laughs) from you know marvel uk captain britain like Mm -hmm. people 
do not know who that is and are not going to get excited about seeing right. those characters again. Whereas the other books are all, I mean, we've got, even though X-Force is a different book, X-Force and X-Factor are different books. They are part of the overall X-Men storyline right. that is going through uncanny and, and adjectiveless X-Men in a way that this, this is, is just not. not going to be. And it's not going to be for another few dozen issues oh i don't so. want to think about that time let's let's be happy <laughs> the fact that we have alan davis still with us and he will be returning to art duties soon for now let us move to final thoughts about this particular issue and i'll let you go first andrew did you have a final thought about this issue andrew something that we didn't get a chance to talk about that you want to highlight yeah i think i just want to highlight that i i respect it for what it was trying to do do you know what i mean like I, it's not a good comic i think davis was still kind of making some good choices that didn't pay off the way either of us, as in myself or Alan Davis, would have liked. That's very charitable. Very charitable. <laughs> Mav, I know your final thought was Robert Frost, but do you have another one? Yeah, I mean, we, we've we picked on the art a lot. I want to give it a little bit of props in that they're trying to do something that is difficult. This tries to recall a lot of classic Paul Smith, John Romita Jr. Like, there's a lot of art that is definitely redrawing. Like, there are obvious panels here where it's like, I'm lifting directly out of classic Death of Phoenix stories classic days of future past stories classic like there's a lot of really trying to recall earlier artists and i think that is a very difficult thing to do i think what's going on with you know the three artists on this working together simpson and um who are the two anchors uh palmiati and, and, and hoover like i think they're doing something tricky and hard and mm -hmm. i think they should be commended at that they were doing their best. That said, I was reading this at the time and I was also reading a book called Marvel Age at the time, which tried to do this sort of thing for the entire Marvel universe and I liked Marvel Age better so mm -hmm. than this yeah. issue. So, yeah, I mean, we try so, to be nice on the pod knowing that deadlines are a thing and people are kind of true in the best they can on the art side especially, right. but... This book was still, on time. You know, in, yeah, in, it was in, on 2020, time. in 2022, they would have just gone, ah, there's no book in May. We'll, we'll yeah. see what happens yeah. next month. And so, yeah, this hadn't, that the, hadn't There's certain things though, it definitely reminded me of the conversation we had with Sue Wisterfield about sort of the limitations of certain artists because it is very interesting how when we get Excalibur at Braddock Manor they're all in their uniforms mm. and at the end of the last yeah. issue they had been in casual clothes and you know they're all in their uniforms here and you're like yeah it was because they didn't want to draw casual clothes so they're just like <laughs> yeah everybody's in their uniform now and you know because it's hard drawing casual clothes and people don't want to do it and it always seems really weird for Excalibur you know a team that when they are hanging around the mansion especially if Davis is drawing it usually are wearing casual clothes so it always stands out to me when we don't have that I feel sort of distanced from the domestic atmosphere that I love so much in Excalibur. Um, my final thought was actually a good thing. I have a positive thing, which is I really liked Professor X's line after he sees the four versions of Cyclops and then he has this line starting um, at the top of the page. Or like, in my mind, Scott Summers, Cyclops is not a cipher. He is a living stream of memory, simultaneously scrawny, youth and mature man, student and friend. You are an illusion based on that fluctuating memory. This is all some sort of astral projection. And, you know, great comic book dialogue gotta love it but i also love you know i thought it was a little clever thing you know all of these different versions of cyclops from different points in continuity exist in his mind as a singular thing and i thought that that was a neat little way of kind of articulating that and i thought it was a pretty good line now that you call attention to it you know what else is neat about it 
the fact that he this is a, and this is an art trick you know art and writing working together um because it's not mentioned when he notices scott must be a mental projection because he keeps changing forms that's what keys him into the fact that oh this means it's an astral projection so i can probably walk now yeah that's, that's <laughs> yeah. a clever little detail xavier yeah. stands up because that because he realizes oh since this isn't real my legs work mm -hmm. which is clever mm -hmm. yeah adam did you have a final thought for us uh, well, you know, uh, there's this distinct group of X-Men fans who are really into Ahab. And for all those Ahab <laughs> oh heads out there, you get some Ahab content here, which I know some people just thirst for. So, uh, Are there you, really? Or are you just making a joke? Uh, I am being very sarcastic right now. Um, oh, thank goodness. Okay. <laughs> no one likes Ahab, <laughs> except uh, the Fox Network who decided to write him into the gifted but uh yeah so uh underrated show <laughs> i like i like the gifted <laughs> th there are some good things there yeah i have never watched it despite the fact that okay i was like a huge fan of the show burn notice and it's the same showrunner from burn notice that did the gifted and i was like holy shit the guy who did burn notice is doing an x-men show and yet somehow i've never watched it it's okay i know that that's who was the show <laughs> Huh, check it now, out now i'm like going in my it, it, it is worth it's worth a watch and since it's over it's a finite amount you, you can be in That's and true. out there's, there's not that That's many true. episodes you know you know you're done you know things that are finite from a few years ago that's exactly my entertainment window so absolutely <laughs> plus it's a it's like one of those fun things where they absolutely can't use certain characters so you, you have to pay attention to see yeah. which characters they can use and it's mm -hmm. kind of fun you're like oh is that the postman from uh, the morlock miniseries <laughs> oh, my God. oh yeah it is wow. <laughs> yeah there, there are very, I mean, it's very fun because I'm trying to not ruin anything for Anna. For, oh my God, for who I don't they care. Can use, oh, well, for who they can use, they really do a lot of, I I, I never cared about the Stepford Cuckoos until that show. I, really? Like, they were like, yeah, the Cuckoos yes. are in it and they, they do it and, kind of in a fun way. So, and it's, and it's like, yes, we, we are trying to make you care about these characters because we want to, it, it's, it's interesting. Okay, ending with one other fun thing, which is a spotlight of a letter from the Sword Strokes letters page. Actually, I had two because I wanted to also mention that there's a letter from Brian Alexander, which misspells the name of Sabretooth. And I had a lot of empathy for this because I'm covering the Sabretooth series for Comics XF. Did I misspell it in my entire review and several <laughs> tweets about the series? Oh yeah, I sure did. Did my kind editor just politely correct it in the entire review without mentioning it to me? Totally. Anyway, I know how to spell it now and I won't be making that mistake in the future, but it made me feel a little bit better that I wasn't the only one. That's so thank you, Brian. <laughs> anyway, the letter I did want to spotlight was from Joseph Josephine rather M. Conley. And this is her letter. Dear Swordstrokes, well, here it is. Your first letter from a charter member of the Nightcrawler fan club. Although I buy every issue of Excalibur, I don't often read the letter page. In issue number 48, however, fate drew me to two letters in particular, one from another smitten female fan eager to start a fan club and one young, ma one young man who included a write-up on Kurt Wagner that I won't even attempt to top. I was delighted to see that I'm not the only one who appreciates this down-to-earth hero trapped in an unearthly body. You see, at one time, I didn't know that comics existed. I figured they died out sometime in the 50s. Imagine my surprise when I got to college and discovered that half my classmates, half of her classmates, were wow. devoted fans. There was even one guy who liked to draw them. He introduced me to several comics, and surprise, I really liked them, especially Excalibur. Kitty and Kurt instantly became my favorites, and I've read every magic tale since. Nightcrawler 
Taylor is the second love of my life. And to top it off, he's also my favorite color. And my first love? Well, that guy who introduced me to comics managed to steal my heart before Nightcrawler did. My husband sends his thanks and regards to all at Marvel. Keep up the good work. Nicely nicely done, Josephine. Managed to be funny and... I know, I know. Their (laughs) Nightcrawler love story. I love it. I love it. I'm, I'm just once again impressed that someone got a date because of comics and not in spite of them. <laughs> <laughs> that has happened several times in the Excalibur letters page, so you're yeah, going to have to revise your know. assumptions. <laughs> this, is, this, this, I mean, this has not been my experience. <laughs> so. Excalibur is for lovers, Mav. It brings people Apparently. together. <laughs> Staying. There's a meeting of the round table. No, I can't. So I think we will leave things there other than to say, Adam, thank you so, so much for joining us. We're so grateful for your good humor throughout this difficult issue. Um, Before we go, we need to remind our lovely listeners of where they can find you. Assuming you would like people to find you online, where can they find you? And what stuff of yours, podcast-wise, art-wise, anything else should they be checking out? Uh, Folks can always follow me on Twitter at Arthur Stacy. We have new episodes of Battle of the Atom coming out every Monday. We're on, you know, every podcast podcast service so just look up battle of the atom uh a-t-o-m and you'll find it and uh occasionally i uh write for comics xf i like to draw so if if you like those things you know check me out (laughs) are you taking commissions currently are you too busy i I am taking commissions right now so if anybody would like a lovely uh, drawing of your favorite characters hit me up awesome thank you so 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 much again my pleasure next in one week's time we will be discussing excalibur 53 the litter starring spider-man that's right for the first and only time on this podcast we'll be talking about the web-slinging not quite teenager who could be you and we've got a great spidey scholar on tap to help us in the meantime if you liked what you heard please follow us like and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it don't forget to check out the youtube videos which we've done for several of our episodes which you can find via our website or the vox podcast youtube channel as always if you want to chat with us about excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode let us know you can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you andrew and mav for another expository conversation thank you adam for helping us laugh through it thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought for music for our truly epic theme song play us out 124 minutes on that issue. I don't know how we